Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Ladaris Cordell. I'm a retired judge and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors and excited to be moderating this program. I'm pleased to be joined today by Jamal Green to discuss his new book, How Rights Went Wrong, Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. As the Dwight Professor of Law at Columbia University, Green focuses his work on the structure of legal and constitutional arguments. He knows the law and different interpretations of it, and now he seeks to understand the sudden explosion of rights and its impact on America. We as Americans pride ourselves on our rights, but that leaves many to believe that granting rights to one group inherently denies rights to another. Strict constitutional interpretation by our courts only furthers this belief. Jamal Green, however, believes that we must recouple rights for all with justice for all in order to save society from complete division. We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want you to ask your questions too. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. So welcome, Professor Jamal Green. I read your book. I am totally intrigued by it, and I've got so many questions for you. So first, a welcome, and then we can begin. Thank you so much, and thanks to the audience for for tuning in. And I appreciate your engagement with the with the book. I think it's on a very important topic. Absolutely. Uh, before we begin, though, Jamal, I have a disclaimer. Uh, I am not, nor have I ever been, a constitutional law scholar. Similarly, it's unlikely that our audience is dominated by individuals who have an expertise in constitutional law, and all of that means that I'm likely in very good company. So all of this is to say that I ask that you give me some latitude should my questions, I don't know, sound a bit naive to you. Okay? Okay. I think that's unlikely, but let's, let's see what happens. <laughs> all right. So in your introduction to the book, you write this. Rights claims have run amok. We debate policy in the language of rights. Conflict over rights can encourage us to take aim at our political opponents instead of speaking to them and we shoot to kill. The problem of the 21st century, in short, is the problem of the rights line. So what exactly are rights? I mean, there are rights that are in the Constitution. There are rights that are created by the US Supreme Court. What's wrong with having rights? Isn't that what makes America so great? We all have rights, right? Well, that is... um that it, it to the degree that America is great, that is one of the things that makes America great. We do have rights. I believe in rights. I think rights are important. Uh, but uh, I think that what courts do with constitutional rights is not, in fact, to give them the respect that they need to have in order to thrive. The problem isn't rights. The problem is conflict of rights, which is to say that if every one of us has a bunch of rights to do um, things that are important to us, to pursue things that are valuable to us, to uh, achieve commitments that 
um, make our lives meaningful and help us to flourish, those come into conflict with each other. And you've got to make a decision if you're a legal decision maker. You can either um, decide that none of us has rights and then there's no problem um, with them clashing. Or you can decide that all of us have absolute rights and that doesn't work at all because they, they're going to clash with each other. Or you can recognize the rights of some, but not the rights of others. And I think what courts in the United States tend to do, and I think it is also a part of our broader political culture, is to assume that conflicts of rights have to be resolved by deciding that one person has rights and the other doesn't. And so a lot of pressure gets put on the decision of where rights lie. Um, that's That makes those political conflicts very high stakes political conflicts because now you're talking about who the constitution favors and who it doesn't favor. Uh, and that's, uh, that's high stakes, uh, higher stakes than I think courts should, should allow. Uh, so you started by saying, what are, what are rights? And I, uh, one of the things I'm really committed to in this work is look, we can talk about rights in a philosophical sense. We can have a philosophical conversation about what a right is. <clears throat> We can also define rights purely subjectively in terms of what uh, I what I feel like I need to flourish, what you feel like you need uh, to flourish. But when courts make legal decisions, right, they are representing the state. Um, they are bringing what is, in effect, the implicit violence of the state. Right, the, the state pursues its objectives through coerc coercion to bear on our disputes, uh, and so. The stakes of the state saying that someone has a right and someone else doesn't have a, a right is not philosophical. It's not subjective. It's real. And in a society that's divided in the way that our society is, we need more strategies for allowing our rights to coexist. Uh, and I think we're we're still working towards that. So, Jamal, you clerked at the U.S. Supreme Court for Justice Stevens, and I will assume that that was a wonderful experience for you. And yet, in your book, you really take aim at the U.S. Supreme Court for issuing decisions that, in your book you write, are responsible for tearing this country apart. So explain to us, what is it that the court is doing? And what it is, is it about the court's approach to rights that has, in your words, and I quote, shattered the court's moral compass? So it's a it's a few things, and I'll I'll, I'll say that we are a, a deeply divided society and torn apart in any number of ways, and I do think that the way courts have thought about rights contributes to that. Um, I don't think it's the only thing that contributes to it. So I just want to make clear that I'm not saying that I, my book explains all of American division or polarization. Um, that's not at all the case, uh, but uh, but I do think they've contributed. And when I say that they, that the way in which courts have decided cases has separated rights from justice, what I mean is that we, uh, we, we hand our rights disputes to the courts, right? So when, we, we, when we, we, we associate rights disputes with a legal decision uh, about what our rights are, and legal decisions are supposed to be made by courts, we tell ourselves. They're not supposed to be made by other institutions or political institutions. Courts then take them, take those, those disputes 
and legalize them, talk about them in the way in which lawyers talk about disputes. And so let's take um, a basic dispute between two people. I'll, I'll use the, uh, the, the, there's a case that some of the audience might be familiar with or remember, but a few years ago, a Colorado a baker refused to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. Uh, and Colorado had a law that said you can't discriminate against your customers on the basis of their sexual orientation. So what do we see when we see that dispute? A judge or a lawyer sees that dispute and says, well, on one, on one side is freedom of speech or freedom of religion. And the, the baker claimed both of those things in various forms. And on the other side, maybe a government interest in promote in, in enforcing its equality laws. Uh, and so the question is, does the baker have a free speech right to discriminate against this couple? And so we'll think about the texts of the First Amendment. We'll think about cases decided under the First Amendment. We'll think about whether what the right standard of review is. This is a lawyerly term for um, how much deference do we give to the government or not. Uh, maybe we'll think about original understanding. Maybe we'll see what Madison would have thought about this controversy. These are uh, abstract ways to talk about the, ju the justice of this dispute. Does it implicate this text? Right. That's how lawyers tend to think of rights disputes. The other way to think about it is to say, look, there, there, there are parties here. There's a, a man who um, uh, bakes cakes for a living. He has some reason for not baking one here. There's a government entity that has passed a law for its own reasons, equality-based reasons. There are two people who want to get married and who think that's important to them and want a cake for their wedding. All of those people have their interests, um, and we've got to figure out how do they fit together in this conflict. The justice of that conflict has to do, to, has to do with the answers to a, a set of questions that are not questions about what did Madison think of, of this controversy, but the justice of it has to do with, well, what are his reasons? What are his commitments? What are the alternatives available? What are the burdens on this couple? How much deference should we give to the government here, given that it has its own reasons? What are its what's its evidence that um, this is a, a serious equality issue? These are questions of fact um, that um, that uh, any time we're resolving uh, a rights dispute and care about justice, we've got to ask those kinds of factual questions. But judges legalize the controversy and ask a different set of questions. And so we end up arguing about things that actually aren't related to justice. We argue about the meaning of the First Amendment when the meaning of the First Amendment, in my view, and I'm happy to talk about this more, it doesn't get us very far in answering the dispute that's in front of us in a case like uh, the case was called Masterpiece Cake Shop. So, but what, what, you, what it sounds like is that instead of going to the courts, you have said, and you've just described it, that we should perhaps be mediating rights. Uh, I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. It's, don't battle it out. Let's kind of find out why the baker's doing, what's motivating the baker, um, what's motivating the couple, what do they need, and somehow figuring out how to mediate. Is that, is that where, is that the, the approach that you are promoting? Well, I, I use the term mediation a number of times in the book because I, I want to invoke something else that courts do and that, that mediators do. Often, we often don't think of the Supreme Court as a court that engages in mediation. They're supposed to declare our rights for us. Um, and I'm trying to reconceptualize what the court is good at and what the court should be good at 
to do to, to something closer to mediation, which is resolving um, disputes by making us see what interests the other party has and trying to figure out where there's common ground um, and, what, and where, the, where the actual disagreement might, uh, might be. Uh, courts, are, are, courts need to be involved, right? So I'm not suggesting that when I use terms like mediation or talk about uh, the ways in which um, we have to recover some responsibility for resolving our political disputes, which I think rights, rights disputes are political disputes, uh, I don't mean to say courts have no involvement. I mean to say that the kinds of questions that courts ask should be the kinds of questions that we ask as well, right? So if, um, if uh, I'll, I'll take a, a different example, gun rights, which I don't talk about very much in the, in the book, um, but, you know, Second Amendment, some people believe that they have a strong individual right to bear arms in a range of situations. Others believe that... Uh, uh, public safety uh, uh, means that the government can reasonably regulate the right to bear arms in a number of ways. In any given situation, right, the question that the kinds of questions we should ask are, are there ways of satisfying both of those interests, assuming we think both those interests matter? Uh, and I think most Americans and most judges think both of those interests are important. So if the District of Columbia has a law that says uh, you have to have a trigger lock on your long arms, which is the, a, a law that was struck down in a, a, a Second Amendment case in 2008. Well, the question in a case like that is about the burdens of this particular kind of, the burdens and benefits of that particular kind of law. Right? That's the question that we should be arguing about. That's the question courts should be arguing about. And when we make policy, that's the question that political actors should be arguing about. Someone says, I think having a trigger lock will have the following consequence. I think it I think I won't be able to, to to unlock my gun quickly enough if I need it. And someone else will say, well, no, but but there are lots of accidents that happen. And here's the evidence that this causes a public safety problem. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about, um, and there's no reason why judges can't also be engaged in that kind of conversation about benefits and burdens instead of making this case about the 18th century, which is what the court does in that, did in that, that 2008 case in the District of Columbia. Um, abstracting away from questions of uh, of justice, right? The justice of that law has to do with its benefits and burdens. It doesn't have to do with uh, with uh, what the framers thought about about long arms. Um, that that only gets us so far to answering modern questions. So, okay, um, I, I think that people are fascinated by court cases, and in your book, you describe some really fascinating ones. And you also talk about the backgrounds of some of the justices. Uh, so before we delve into a few of these, these court cases, why is it important to know who these justices were or are? If in theory, justice is blind and judges in theory rule bias free, why should their upbringing or their life experiences even matter? Well, well, none of us is really free of bias. Um, and in fact, I don't think we'd want judges who are entirely free of a certain kind of bias. You don't want judges to be, to favor one party over the other, um, of course. Uh, but you know, judges make important political decisions within our society. And we want them to, right? We pick them through political processes uh, because we want them to be adapted to the society in which they live. Uh, otherwise, we'd pick them at random or something. I mean, we pick them through 
through partisan political processes, right? So, um, but again, that's not quite the same thing as being biased towards one litigant or another. That's to say that we expect judges to bring to a case a set of life experiences and a perspective on the law. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time on um, you know, diving into some of the backstories of, of, of judges um, in, the, in the book, in part because, you know, I teach constitutional law and the way in which I teach it is to kind of go historically and look at the ways in which the law evolves over time. And the law evolves over time in part because society itself evolves over time and has different um, different priorities and commitments, but also because of the personnel on the court uh, and uh, different people um, uh, staffing these institutions d does lead to different results um, because they're different people. And in fact, that's in some ways one of the, the big take-homes of the book is that we're all different from one another and we've got to account for that. We can celebrate that, right? We don't need to, that's not a reason to say that um, some of us are, are, are devils and others of us are angels, right? It's to say that we all have different values um, and we take that to rights conflicts and judges take that to rights conflicts. And you can't eliminate that from the law. You can't eliminate the fact that people bring values to decisions. What you can do is you can try to encourage judges to have a conversation that all of us can participate in, right? So if you bring your values to a conflict and then say, no, actually this conflict is about uh, is about an interpretation of a legal precedent, uh, about, about strict scrutiny, a term that um, you and I know, but that if you're not a lawyer, you've probably never heard before. Um, or this dispute is about the um, Federalist Papers, um, when it's in fact a dispute about, a, 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 it's, a, it's a, a, a live contemporary political dispute between people who have different values, and we should be able to talk about those values openly. We can have an open conversation about them without pretending that the law is something that it isn't. Interesting. All right. So let's see. Uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and Justice uh, John Marshall Harlan were on the Supreme Court um, at the same time. Um, Holmes, and this I learned from your book, uh, a thrice wounded Civil War hero, and Harlan, a slaveholder into adulthood who condemned the Emancipation Proclamation, campaigned against Lincoln's reelection and opposed black suffrage. So you write about Holmes, the apparent good guy, and this is from your book. He is the bad guy in this tale. And about Harlan, the apparent racist bad guy, you write, he's the good guy. So could you please explain, talk to us about that? Sure, uh, sure, and I and just to be clear, I don't I don't mean Holmes is a bad guy because he was a war hero, uh, and I don't mean that Harlan's a good guy because he was a slaveholder. Um, uh, Harlan changes quite a lot over the course of his life um, in very significant ways uh, over the course of his life, in terms of his views about race. And Holmes is a problematic figure in any number of ways, um, uh, including being a an, an avowed eugenicist. Right, he believed in extermination of people who were feeble-minded or poor um, because he didn't want them to give birth to other people who he thought were not um, going to thrive. Uh, and that that's what this was typical of a lot of um, capital P progressives in the early 20th century and late 19th century. Um, uh, and it was a common view among uh, Holmes and his set uh, that um, we should euthanize people who um, uh, who are not 
going to contribute what they thought to be important things to society. So villain in that sense, in that he wasn't, an, I, I, my sense of him was that at least to most people, he wasn't that nice a man, right? But, but also when it comes to the law, uh, and this is a, a somewhat of a complex story that I, I tell in the book, but when it comes to the law, um, they had very different views about how to think about rights. And uh, Holmes's view, and this is you know, kind of part of his biography, I think, contributes to this view. But Holmes's view was that you just let the political process play itself out. And whoever wins, wins. Um, so he was a he was a skeptic of judicial review in a lot of instances. Um, later in his career, he did come to believe that there are certain rights that you have to think think about in strong terms. And so he is renowned as a free speech advocate who was before his time when it comes to freedom of, of speech. And he sees the person who famously says, you know, you, you've got to be able to criminalize shouting, shouting fire in a crowded theater uh, because um uh, uh but 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 he's against criminalizing um uh people for sedition acts of sedition during world war 1 and so forth so but in general though holmes is a big skeptic of judicial review he's uh, uh he thinks you let the political process play play itself out and that was actually part of his he was a social darwinist right so part of his his view that of kind of survival of the fittest whoever wins wins out politically is the is the should be the winner before the before the law as well. Harlan didn't view rights in that way, right? Harlan thought that there are quite a number of rights. And, and Harlan is actually most famous for being a dissenter in uh the case of Plessy versus Ferguson. This is the Louisiana case that declares the the legality of, of separate but equal. So it was a kind of blessing on Jim Crow. And Harlan writes the only dissenting opinion in that in that case. Uh, that gets then vindicated in Brown versus Board of Education. So Harlan is famous, becomes famous, notwithstanding that he held held people in bondage um, as an adult. Um, later, um, has a very strong change of heart, uh, becomes a, a, a civil rights champion, and also thinks other kinds of rights have to be taken seriously. He's not an absolutist about rights, um, but he believes that when you've got a dispute that might involve a rights claim on one side and the, a government a strong government interest, maybe also stated in rights terms. On the other side, you've got to you've got to look at the evidence. You've got to make a judgment about it. So these two are are both dissenters in a famous case called Lochner versus New York. Uh, this is a 1905 case, very well known to lawyers. This is one of those cases that's well known to lawyers and not well known um, to non-lawyers. It's a 1905 case where New York passes a law that. Um, sets a maximum number of hours for people to work in bakeries. And it's challenged as a violation of the right to contract, the right for me to decide how much to, to pay my workers, how long they're going to work, and for the workers to, to enter into whatever relationships they want. This is a labor measure. It's also understood to be a health and safety measure passed by, unanimously passed by the New York legislature. And this decision, and the, so the court strikes this down. Um, a five-four decision strikes the, strikes down the ba the bake shop act, as it strikes down the maximum hours law, and this decision is understood basically universally by mainstream lawyers in the U.S. today and judges as being wrong. Um, every member of the Supreme Court um, thinks that Lochner versus New York is wrong. It kind of defines judicial activism. Is when you see a a, a law, um, if the if the law doesn't implicate 
a kind of super special right, then you let the legislature do what it wants. That's how it's been interpreted in modern terms. There are two dissenting opinions in Lochner versus New York. And which of those dissents we adopt as the story of what's wrong with that case turns out to be very important. So Holmes's dissent says, you know, the thing that's wrong with, with this act, with, with this decision that says you can't have a maximum hours law for bakers is that the legislature should be able to do what it wants. There is no right to contract in the constitution. It's not there in the text. There's lots of laws that violate uh, a right to contract or interfere with it. So legislature should be able to do what it wants. Harlan says, no, there is a right to contract. We've recognized that. If the legislature had no good reason for limiting the rights, the, the, the hours of bakers, then that's that should be struck down. But here they did have a reason. He take, he pulls out all of this evidence of 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 disease among bakers and susceptibility to tuberculosis and all sorts of other things and says the legislature had a good basis for doing this. They're trying to protect people's um, health and safety. And so, yes, you have a right to contract, but it only goes so far because you live in a society. And um, when reasonable laws are passed, you've got to let the legislature pass them because democracy is also something that we value in this society. So you've got to reconcile the right to contract with democracy. Holmes says, no, you, it's just, you get, you, so you, you, you don't have a right to contract. You just let the legislature do what it wants. By the middle of the 20th century, Holmes's view is dominant among elite lawyers and judges, that you let legislatures do what they want, with an exception. And the exception is, well, sometimes, sometimes you really can't trust the legislature. And the paradigmatic example of that is Jim Crow. You've got a whole region of the, a large region of the country that is literally terrorizing a large portion of its population because it has white supremacist views, right? So, so this is not a situation in which you can trust the legislature. So the confluence bring together, what are the lessons from what it what is understood to be judicial activism in the Lochner case, combined with the lessons of, you know, you can't trust the legislature completely, is you have, you end up with kind of two tracks for thinking about rights. One track is, well, here is a super serious violation of people's basic citizenship. And so you don't trust the legislature when they're engaged in racial segregation. On the other hand, most laws, you should trust the legislature and you trust them absolutely. That's Holmes's lesson to the progressives who are dominating elite legal practice and education by the middle of the 20th century. So those are the two tracks as you have, you're in, either in a world where the legislature should be trusted entirely or a world in which the legislature is abusive and oppressive and violating your rights. Well, that's, you know, if the, if the only claims in the world are either a maximum hours law for bakers, 10 hours a day or 60 hours a week, or a racial, racial segregation and Jim Crow laws, well, that, okay, we can, we can, we can place those laws into one of those tracks or another one, right? But when it gets more complicated than that, and you've got, you know, in the 1960s, you've got the sexual revolution, you've got the second wave feminism and the women's rights movement, you've got radical changes in how we understand freedom of speech. So we're talking about campus speech and we're talking about 
people burning draft cards and we're talking about defamation laws and we're talking about lots of complicated questions where the government might be have some legitimate reason for doing the thing that it's doing. And at the same time, someone has a legitimate rights claim. And how do we marry those things together? If we're still if we're listening to Harlan, well, we Harlan agrees we need a language of reconciling the the government's interest with the rights of the citizen. But if we're still listening to Holmes, as I think we still are today, we've got to choose. Are we in the category of deference to the legislature and let, let the government do what it wants? Or, or, or are we in the category of an almost absolute, very, very strong right where we don't trust the legislature at all? Uh, and that's that's the problem. Right. So so let's let's get Long even more. No, no, no. This is good because I, I want to get to something more specific. And by the way, we have wonderful questions coming in from uh, our audience, which is such a benefit in doing these Commonwealth Club programs. We just get terrific questions and I will be feeding those in in just a moment. So there's a section in your book titled A Tale of Two Abortion Cases, where you describe how the hot button issue of abortion was handled in Germany and here in the U.S. Um, and rights certainly collide on this issue. Those who claim the right of a woman to control her body and those who claim that the fetus has a right to life. Um, your view is that when rights appear to collide, uh, we should use the courts really as a last resort. So can you tell us um, what happened in Germany? Sure. So, um, so Germany and many other countries as well, but Germany very prominently is dealing with abortion rights in the 1970s, <laughs> roughly the same time that the U.S. is dealing with abortion rights um, as a serious political controversy. And Roe versus Wade in the U.S. is decided in 1973, and their restrictive measures that restrict a woman's right to an abortion are struck down by the court um, because they're not sufficiently protective of a woman's uh, autonomy interest. In Germany, at roughly the same time, the national legislature passes a law that liberalizes access to abortion. So up until that point, in almost no circumstances could someone obtain an abortion, could a woman um, obtain an abortion, they liberalize access to abortion and make it available in some instances. And the Christian Democrats, the political party, challenges that law in the German constitutional court for not sufficiently respecting the value of fetal life. So coming in a very different direction from Roe versus Wade, Roe took on the question of whether fetal life is something that has constitutional value. And the court says, no, it doesn't. And the reason the court in Roe says, no, it doesn't, is because, and this is explicit in the opinion, Justice Blackman, who writes the opinion, says, if we were to hold that the fetal, fetal life has constitutional value, then the case would be over and there's no way to, to also respect the, the rights of the woman, right? That you can't win that case because that is something, because that that means the the state has to win. Uh, Germany looks the German court looks at it very differently and says no, of course, of course, fetal life has constitutional value. And this for them this goes back to Nazi Germany and the, the and a discomfort with saying that that there are certain beings that are that are beneath the constitution. And they say, of course, it has value, and the legislature has to have some respect for that value. But of course, women's rights are also important. They're also constitutionally valuable and women's autonomy is also constitutionally valuable. So 
So how do we how do we reconcile those? And what they say is, look, the legislature is the one that has to make this decision, but the decision it makes has to be one that respects those things at the same time. And what ends up happening is there's a there's compromise. Uh, and over time, what develops is a compromise in which all sides of the ideological spectrum around this issue come together to talk about um, women's choices. And what do I mean by that is if you're asking the question, how do you respect fetal life at the same time you respect women's choices? Well, you, you, make those, you make those choices meaningful. You make it more likely that they're going to choose not to have an abortion. So that means, maybe it means sex education. Maybe it means prenatal care. Maybe it means child care. Maybe it means employment guarantees. Right? There's a big conversation about how do you make it be the case that people make choices in ways that are, make individual choices in ways that um, make abortion less likely to happen. Um, and that, in fact, criminalizing it doesn't do that because it, 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 it means that um, it, the practice goes underground uh, and women feel like they have to do something illegal, uh, and which is, uh, which is uh, not respectful of their choices. So all of which is to say that um, this issue, which is highly controversial, uh, is more controversial in the U.S. today than it was in the 1970s is much less controversial in Germany today than it was in the 1970s. Even this issue is one where um, acknowledging that there are values on both sides of the political conflict that are important can force a certain kind of politics rather than a politics that says, either we've got to capture the courts, right? We've got to get the courts to recognize that we're right and the other side is wrong. So we've got to go capture. And so that legalizes the controversy, leaves courts as the, the main engines in that controversy when it's a political conflict. It's a political conflict because we're different from each other, have very different values from one another. And the way you resolve political conflicts is to resolve them, right? Is to, is to resolve them through political uh, modes of negotiation. That's not to say that that we could do this now today on that issue. It's, it, there's a lot of water under that bridge. We've gone very far down a certain road, but it is to say that, uh, that you can have surprising outcomes when you give um, both sides leverage within, uh, within conversations about rights. So I, 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 you know, my, my sense is that's good and fine for the Germans. They're, where abortion, to a certain extent, is legal. And then there are all these services provided for women who uh, decide they don't want to go that route. I get that. But I have a very difficult time imagining people in this country who are so passionately opposed to abortion that some have even resorted to murdering physicians who perform them. It's hard for me to even imagine them backing off and settling for a compromise. Um, so... I mean, do you can you envision that ever happening in this country? Well, I, I, I'll say a couple of things. So one is um, I'll go back to the fact that that ab abortion was much less controversial in the United States at the time Roe versus Wade was decided than it is now. There are lots of reasons for that. It's been mobilized by lots of actors in lots of different political contexts. Um, and in Germany, it's much less controversial now than it was in the 1970s. And in fact, 
there's a pretty good case to be made that it was more controversial in Germany in the 1970s than it was in the U.S. in the 1970s. And that's totally flipped. And there is a, a pretty straightforward story one could tell about the role of courts in, in helping to, to change that and helping to change the politics around it. The second thing I'll say is um, just that I'm, I'm not naive. Uh, I think I'm not naive about about this this issue in particular, and there may be no issue on, on which the politics are are harder um, than this particular issue. So, I'm not sure how far how much progress we can make on on abortion rights given where we are. But it is the case that the American people um, are in a different place than their political leadership is. Right. So, if you're a Republican in Congress, you are um, essentially without exception. There are very very few exceptions. Uh, are um, anti-abortion rights. And if you're a Democrat in Congress, again, with very few exceptions, you are um, you are in favor of abortion rights. And there are incentives within our politics that lead to extreme positions there. So Alabama passes a law that says, that says you can't obtain an abortion after six weeks, for example, when many women don't know whether they're pregnant or not. Uh, but the American people you know, most Americans believe that there should be some degree of, of a right to decide whether to have an abortion or not for women. And most Americans also believe that there are circumstances under which that right can be restricted. Where the Germans have landed is basically abortion is unrestricted and largely paid for in the first trimester. And it's available in the second trimester um, uh, under certain conditions, if there are certain indications. So um, uh, for, for, if there's pr for particular reasons, it's not available just as a matter of choice. Now, that's a regime that many people in America would oppose, right? So on both sides, right? So many, many people in favor of abortion rights would say that's not liberal enough. And many opposed to abortion rights would say it's too liberal. But you know, if you were to say, like, could we, how do we capture the political consensus of the, of the American people? That wouldn't get so far from where most Americans are is up to a point, but then you have to start taking into consideration other things that we value, um, uh, in, in, including life. We're not there as a country. We have, we have one, some States that are, that where there's are completely open, uh, access to abortion and other States where there's almost no access to abortion. Whereas in Germany, they've reached that compromise through politics. In fact, the, the statute that puts that in place was called the group bill. And it was called the group bill because so many different factions came together to come up with legislation that would work for everyone. And to part of the book, again, not to be naive about this issue or say how much progress one could make in this country and where you know, America is different from Germany in lots of, of important ways. But to say that part of the role of judges should be um, deciding cases in ways that encourage us to try to arrive at political compromises around our values conflicts, as opposed to um, sending us even deeper into our own corners, which is what I think judges do, do today. Right. So just to pick up on that, I'll let folks know, I have one more question for you, Jamal, and then we're going to take uh, questions from our audience. Uh, so here's the question. I, I'm, this is a quote from your book on page 163. You write, courts should be granting just enough constitutional leverage on each side that we have no choice but to sit across from each other at the table, to look each other in the eye, and to speak to and hear each other. 
Too often, U.S. courts instead see their job in constitutional cases as declaring who's right. The answer so often is neither side or both. So what is the approach that should be taken in the battle over affirmative action and college admissions? How do both sides win? The side that claims their right to admission was unfairly denied and the side that claims that they that structural racism gives them a right to have been admitted. How do we, how do we get there using your approach? Well, I, I don't know um, how one ultimately decides a case because this is part of the, the part of the provocation of the book is to say that that really depends on what kind of program we're talking about. What are the reasons articulated by the university? How faithfully is it living up to those reasons? How transparent is it being in what it's trying to do? Um, those questions are all really important. The way not to answer that question is to say, well, an affirmative action program, race-based affirmative action program should be viewed through the same lens as we view a segregation law, um, which is the court's approach. Um, uh, they say, I use this term strict scrutiny. This is the most skeptical form of review, most skeptical of the government form of review. And it's applied to affirmative action just as it's applied to, to Jim Crow. Uh, that's a flattening of, of the very complex question of when the government can think about race and be race conscious in uh, pursuing certain objectives. So what ends up happening is um, courts... Um, courts force, I'll say universities, we're not, those aren't, aren't the only institutions that engage in race-based affirmative action, but I'll use that just as a shorthand, um, require universities to articulate what in the law is known as a compelling state interest, which is the only interest, the only interest that can overcome strict scrutiny is a so-called compelling state interest. And those are, that's a very narrow set of interests and the interests that have been recognized by courts in these cases is the interest in diversity. We've all heard that term before. Um, most of us celebrate um, diversity as something that is worth committing oneself to. But in cases of race-based affirmative action, uh, I think it's actually fairly transparently clear that most institutions that have programs like that are not just pursuing diversity in the abstract, but are responding to a to a, a very particular problem, which is a, a, the problem of structural inequality. There are certain groups that are stuck in a web of intense disadvantage across a number of areas, not just education, but also public health and criminal justice uh, uh, and, um, uh, and employment and so forth. Uh, and that pretending that all groups are just the same in America is profoundly naive. And so if you were to say we're going to limit all educational opportunities to 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 those who are able to um, to uh, uh, perform along certain metrics, along which like some groups just do much better than others for a whole web of reasons, well, that's unfair. And so that's part of what part of what the motivation behind race-based affirmative action plans are. There's no reason to think that we should be intensely skeptical of institutions, particularly institutions run by major, racial majorities, um, that um, 
try to try to pursue that vision of equality, right? So those institutions are trying to protect the rights of members of certain groups who face intense structural disadvantage. On the other side of that conflict is someone who believes an individual who hasn't gotten into a school or um, uh, or a program that they're that they want to get into believes they've you know done the right thing and gotten a certain score in a test or done well in, in terms of grades and that race is a pernicious category and they should be evaluated on the basis of their, that, that has nothing to do with their race. I think that from the perspective of what Americans value, um, there's a, there's a reasonable argument on both sides of that conflict. Um, and the constitution, which just talks about equality, it doesn't tell you. <clears throat> has the equality of the rejected applicant been sacrificed? Or is the equality of the of people facing group-based disadvantage being sacrificed? So what is in fact a values a, a conflict between people who disagree about how to apply equality uh, is transformed by courts into just a question of is race involved, which is a, a flattening and some oversimplification of the issue that doesn't enable us to ask the kinds of questions going back to the beginning, questions about justice, which is questions about, well, tell us about this program. Tell us about what your reasons are. Um, uh, tell us how thoughtful you've been about designing your particular affirmative action plan, given that there are victims of that plan. Tell us what evidence you're relying on, what groups are involved. Um, tell us more. And you know, thought, thoughtful efforts to pursue equality through educational practices is something to be celebrated and deferred to less thoughtful efforts. There are reasons for courts to step in and say, here's where you're not being thoughtful enough because that individual person's rights are also important. And so we're going to push you to be more thoughtful, but it's your decision, right? Because we live in a democracy. And this goes back to the kind of, there's a single animating point to the book. It's that rights and government are not antagonistic towards each other. They're consistent with each other. But because we disagree, we're gonna they're gonna be they're gonna be disputes. And it's not we have to decide the right on one hand and then there's some government interest on the other. It's government people pursue their rights through governance as well. And so in so many of our controversies, there are rights on both sides. And if there are rights on both sides, you can't decide those cases through legal abstractions about where the right is. Mm-hmm. You've gotta you've gotta get in, you've got to dig into the facts. And the book um tries to suggest some some strategies and some ways of doing that. Wow. Um, I'm going to take some questions, uh, give you some questions from our audience. And I still have so many more I want to ask my own, but <laughs> well, I'll share. Um, so here's a question. Um, should the Supreme Court be expanded from nine justices to 13? Well, so court expansion. I, so I'll say first, on on as to the ideas in the book, this issue is somewhat tangential, I think, to the ideas in the book, except in the following sense, which is that um, what I'm urging in the book is that courts pay more attention to factual, to relevant factual differences. This might mean that in order for the law to be um, relatively consistent, that the court has to take a lot more cases than it does. And I generally do believe that the Supreme Court doesn't take enough cases. And if it, in order for it to take more cases, I think the court should be not just 13, but should be, you know, 30 or 40 people. Uh, I think that that would 
um, resolve some of our um, appointments conflicts as well. If any individual justice is not so very important, I, I think you know you could sit on panels and have 30, 40 justices on the court, and that I, I think that'd be an improvement on our system. What I wouldn't favor is to the degree one is talking about court packing, so adding justices in a partisan fashion. Uh, and part of my opposition to that is that it it takes the court too seriously. Um, so part of my you know, part of my part part of the problem I have with this court self conception is that it conceives of itself as the 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 body that will decide our rights disputes for us that will speak for our values and the court in fact says this explicitly in a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey an abortion rights case um, when I think that's a very unhealthy attitude for courts to take in a democratic society I think courts have a very important role to play but their role is not to decide our values for us um, that's our job um, and I, I think that focusing too much on on the membership of the court reinforces that narrative. If uh, you were nominated by President Biden to the Supreme Court, um, is that something you would look at and be willing to do? So, mean, mean, you mean serve? <laughs> or, yes. or, oh, yeah. uh, I, well, I, I'll say uh, I, I don't anticipate being nominated to the Supreme Court um, by, by anyone. Um, but but yes, I would I would serve uh, if nominated to the to the Supreme Court. Interesting. Um, here's a more personal question: How did you become interested in constitutional law, and who were your legal role models? Uh, so, good question. I, I think you know I used to be a journalist before I went to law school. I was a professional journalist, and and part of I was a sports reporter in particular. And part of why I went to law school is because. I wanted to take my day job more seriously than I than I than I could as a sports journalist. Um, not to say that the work of being a journalist is not something to be taken seriously, and the people I worked with were were really terrific journalists. But I, I just stopped caring about sports, and the way that the way one has to tell those stories um, was not just wasn't compelling to me anymore. Uh, and so. I think that's part of my own kind of origin story is that I went to law school because I wanted to, um, I wanted my life to be connected to the things in life that I paid attention to and took seriously, um, which included lots of policy questions and public policy and pu public conversations about, about law and justice and so forth. And so I think that just naturally led me once I got to law school to being interested in constitutional law, but I guess one never quite knows how, what, what leads one to a particular, um, to a particular path. Uh, in terms of my role models, I clerked for two judges and um, both of them are role models. Uh, that's Guido Calabresi, who's a second circuit judge. This is the court of appeals that um, sits over New York and Connecticut and Vermont. Uh, and Justice John Paul Stevens, um, both of whom I think well understood that that judgment is an is an incredibly important part of judging. Um, that may seem obvious, right? But I think especially the higher one goes in the in the appellate ladder, so the closer one gets to the Supreme Court, um, what, uh, judges are socialized to believe that what they're supposed to do is something abstract, is something um, rule oriented, that they're supposed to 
not think about the particular issues before them and try to try to try to put things into categories. And uh, while that's a very pervasive way of thinking about um, constitutional law, uh, it's not the way that people in most countries think about constitutional law. And there's a lot of comparative elements in the book. And it's not the there's there's no it's a it's a it's one particular perspective on how to think about the law in the U.S. and there are other ways of thinking about the law that I think are less polarizing and get us closer to thinking about justice questions at the same time we're thinking about rights questions and I I think both Justice Stevens and Judge Calabresi um, would embrace that vision in general terms even if they wouldn't agree with me on everything I've written in the book. Um. Freedom of speech, you write, is the most famous right in the Constitution. And you also write that the courts have um, viewed the First Amendment as protecting all kinds of activities that um, lead to what you call court chaos. That we've, And you write, we've gone too far in that direction. So given that, in your view of the First Amendment, um, I came, recently came across an article in the New York Times titled Facebook Court takes on Trump's ban and his fate. And it describes an oversight board, a, and I quote, hitherto obscure body that will rule on one of the most important questions in the world. Should Donald J. Trump be permitted to return to Facebook and reconnect with his millions of followers? If Facebook accepts its ruling as it is pledged to do, uh, as well as the board's broader guidance, the court, will, the company will endow this obscure panel with a new kind of legitimacy. And you, Professor Green, it turns out, are co-chair of this board. Um, so the article concludes, concludes with a quote from you. And you said in the Times article, the media played a role, a role of this sort at a certain point in history as a kind of trusted intermediary. But there are good reasons for it not to play that role anymore. There's got to be something in between private commercial incentives and government. So... Given that the First Amendment um, pertains to governmental actions, and since Facebook is a private business, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Trump wouldn't have a claim that his right to free expression was being violated if the board were to ban him. That being said, you're part of a new kind of governance. Um, can you talk to us generally about this approach and how it's being viewed around the world? Sure, I, I can talk a little bit about the oversight board, just with the caveat that I can't talk about the Trump case in particular, because it hasn't been resolved yet. And so we're still deliberating about that case. But I do think that where the board sits, um, which is a regulating a private entity, Facebook, with reference to essentially public standards. So one of the things that we look at is um, international human rights law, um, which is which is public law, which is law for states, but applying that law because Facebook has committed itself to abiding by some of those principles, applying that that law to, to Facebook. And so some of the questions that arise in the book uh, and some of the difficulties that arise in the book, uh, which relate to the flattening of discourse, right? So in the US, when someone says free speech, right, we use, we tend to think that that's a Trump, but uh, free speech means a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts, right? So if uh, I say that I don't like the government and then the government sh government agents show up and, and arrest me, well, that's a very egregious violation of freedom of speech, and it had better have a good reason <laughs> for doing that. But if uh, the government, let's say, sets up a school and decides 
so public school, public university, and that university decides on who to admit to its class. And someone writes in their essay, I'm a segregationist. And the school says, well, then you're not going to be admitted. Well, that's a that's a restriction on speech, too. Um, but should, should we think about that in the same way as government agents showing up at my door? Of course not. Uh, and yet, I think in a number of contexts, we do think about free speech in that kind of flattened, overly simplistic way. Or if the government passed a law that said, that says um, an air traffic controller has to give accurate information to pilots. Well, that's a restriction of speech. You get fired if you don't do that. Well, that's a restriction of speech, but no one would think that that's a First Amendment violation. Because when we think about the First Amendment, it makes sense to think about not just is free speech involved or is there a free speech right? Of course there is. Um, the question is, well, what is, what's the context here? What institution are we talking about? What are the costs and benefits of applying a speech rule in this context? That Those are the real questions. So same in some ways with what a, what a, what a social media platform does. On the one hand, um, it's a private company. Private companies can regulate speech in the way that they want, uh, especially if they're really small private companies. Now, Facebook's not a really small private company. It's got 3 billion users around the world. And, and there are places, not the U.S., but there are other places where Facebook is the Internet, but that's the way people access the Internet. And so there, you're, you know, when you talk about benefits and burdens, you talk about um, how much responsibility that platform has to have to have some kind of rule of law, which is to say to be coherent, to be consistent, to, um, to not be overly burdensome. Well, then it's, it might be stronger in that context. Um, uh, so uh, so in, I think that the, the point just being that in addressing these kinds of questions, it's just, it's just overly simplistic to, to either say, well, it's just a private company. And Facebook has its own free speech rights, of course, too, right? They can set up a platform and do and decide what's going to be on that platform and what isn't. It's overly simplistic to just say, well, private company, they can do what they want, and therefore nothing valuable is at stake in what they decide to do. It's also overly simplistic to say, uh, it's more than overly simplistic, it's wrong, right? To say that they should be held to the same standards that governments would be held to, especially if we're talking about you know, governments putting people in jail or something that Facebook doesn't do, right? So um, it, it does exemplify how a lot of, you know, values that point in different directions can be at play in the same case. And it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's just too simple to view this through a, the binary frame that we tend to, to, to use for, for, for free speech. Well, good luck with the board. It'll be very interesting to see what happens on that. Thank you. Um, Professor Green, we have time for one final question, and I'm going to take a question from the audience. And this person asks, I'm thinking of a career in the law. Do you have any advice for someone going into that field? Well, lots of advice. I mean, I, I think uh, I, I think that the overriding advice I would give is to, as you enter into this decision, try to think about why you're doing it. <clears throat> Try to think carefully about why you're doing it and whatever that reason is. So first of all, if that reason is I need a job, that's probably not a sufficient reason, right? You need to care about the law um, and you need to care about because it's a lot of investment. Uh, but but wh whatever the reason is, you want to you want to serve the public interest. You maybe you want to uh, make a lot of money doing doing um, high level transactions. Um, uh, maybe you want to work for the government in some capacity. Um, uh, um, make sure that you have those reasons 
that you that you that you keep them in mind as you go through your life in the law. It's important to be open-minded, but it's also important. I think too many people who go into law um, follow a different path than what, where their dreams may have led them because they think they, they've rationalized um, uh, e making the easy choice. Um, and sometimes it makes sense to make the easy choice. Sometimes it makes sense to change your mind about what you thought you wanted to do, but make sure you recognize what the stakes of that might be in terms of what you dreamed about. Um, that it's that people do um, have very successful, very fulfilling lives within the law, but usually it's people who um, remember why they're there. Uh, and that's that's the last, that's my last word on it for, for now. Well, actually we have time for one more question and oh, great. I'm gonna, and, and maybe just maybe two minutes on this at most. So do you have a memorable piece of advice that either of the judges for whom you clerked gave to you? Um, I, I, I have many, but the, the one I'll focus on is, so Justice Stevens um, disagreed with Justice Scalia on almost everything that, that they had, that there was disagreement about. <laughs> so there were lots of, lots of consensus at the court, but the things that, if there was a disagreement, they were often on opposite sides of that disagreement. And Justice Scalia would often disagree in very sharp tones. He, he, was, he was very caustic in the way he talked about his colleagues. And the clerks would always sort of approach this as um, we would get mad um, and would come back and you know, we'd see something Justice Scalia wrote and say, can you believe he said this? about your opinion, you know, Justice Stevens. And Justice Stevens would always laugh it off. Um, he would always laugh it off because he was just, he, um, he was eternally optimistic, um, which is something that, about his ability to persuade people, which is something that, um, that eventually paid off in a number of cases. Um, but he was also, he didn't hold grudges, right? He was very forward-looking in how he thought about problem solving. And in a lot of ways, that's, one of another one of the lessons that I think I take into this book, which is when we see a dispute, try to think about it in terms of a problem to be solved rather than thinking about who's the winner and who's the loser, right? So what if someone says something you don't like? Well, let's figure out how to solve this problem. And, uh, and just keeping your eye on that, on that goal is the only way we're going to get through our disagreements. Um, so uh, so I, I think that's what I would point to is just his ability to stay focused on task. That's terrific. And I'll tell you, I would love to see you on our Supreme Court. I would love it. Well, I'd um, love to see you as president. So oh, can, maybe I'm, we can I'm not, this out. <laughs> oh, my God, that would be crazy. All right. So um, <laughs> our thanks to Jamal Green, author of the new book, How Rights Went Wrong, Why our obsession with rights is tearing America apart. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we also thank you, our audience, for watching and participating live. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. I'm Ladaris Cordell. Thank you. Stay safe. Stay healthy.